you'll take your Bibles out and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the 19th chapter. I'm going to get one more little drink of water while you're turning there. You know I said Matthew, but what I had meant to say was Luke. (laughs) If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 19. For the past few weeks, we have been on the road with Jesus as he is making his way for the very last time to the city of Jerusalem. Well, he will will spend the, the last days of his life on earth. Jesus has a lot to teach us on this trip together. And when we stop where Jesus stops, and when we meet who Jesus meets, and when we watch and when we listen in on the conversations, we have an opportunity to learn more and more about who Jesus is as we watch him, as we listen to him. We have an opportunity to be comforted in what we see. Lord, I I can't believe that you are this kind of person. We have an opportunity to be challenged as well. How closely does my life, how closely do my actions, my words, and my thoughts match the attitudes of Jesus, the one I claim to follow? Am I following him at all? On this Palm Sunday, amid the the waving of the palm branches and the shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we come to the word of God, we need to pray, Lord, reveal yourself to me so that I might hail you, Lord, as the King that you truly are, and that I might live a life worthy of the King that you truly are. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 19, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you will fulfill your promise to us and that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. Open our hearts to your truth, Lord, to comprehend it. And most importantly, Lord, to live a life in accordance with it. Father, we confess that we will need your spirit to do that. And so we thank you for your spirit. 
and pray that he would be the great teacher here this morning and the great transformer of lives that need great transformation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Most of you know my father-in-law, Maury Cottle. He is not here this morning, so it's safe for me to tell this story. When he would bring his family home for furlough from their missions work in the Philippines, he would set his face like flint on the fundraising, support-raising road. From one church to the next, to the next, to the next, from the East Coast to the West Coast. Nothing distracted, nothing deterred Maury Cottle from his purpose. Kathy, my wife, the fourth of his five children, said that the kids would call out from the way back in the borrowed station wagon. You know what the way back is, don't you? That rear-facing seat. Dad, 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 can we, can we please stop? But, but Dad, there goes the Grand Canyon. The response was always the same. We don't have time for that. <laughs> As this flint-faced man set his face to the, tri- to, the, to the path before him, one wonder of the world after the next passed by in the station wagon win- window. Well, as we saw a couple of weeks ago and read even this morning, Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was determined to go there. He was determined to die there. But Jesus didn't rush past Jericho. Jesus didn't rush past Zacchaeus on his way to Jerusalem to that Palm Sunday celebration and to the cross which would follow. And his stopping is very significant. In his gospel, Mark, who writes from the perspective of Peter, records a very interesting uh, detail that, that Peter must have reminded him of or told him about. It says that they were on the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And so we get this picture of this band of travelers. Jesus is leading the way. Behind him, they've fallen back. Some are the disciples. And behind them, an even greater crowd of people who are traveling along with Jesus. And something in Jesus' stride something in the expression on Jesus' face, something about his whole demeanor caused this awe, this astonishment, this fear to come over this entire group that was traveling with him. I don't think the fear is because they knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. As we've seen the past few weeks, Jesus has predicted his death three times. And even the third time he predicted it, Scripture says the disciples did not understand, they did not know what he was talking about. I don't think they're aware of the reception that awaits them in Jerusalem, the palm branches and and all the shouting of Hosanna. I think more it had to do with Jesus. And maybe in these last few miles before Jerusalem, he's completely absorbed with his thoughts about what lies ahead. Maybe Jesus is preparing himself for the battle that lies ahead. Certainly the weight of that would have a a discernible physical expression. Maybe Jesus is just lost in love. Love for the people that's compelling him to go to Jerusalem. We don't even know that kind of love. Surely that kind of love would have a physical, discernible expression. 
Maybe it's a combination of both of those things and things that we can't even imagine to, to talk about or, or, or write about. But whatever it is, we know from Scripture that it is both awe-inspiring and fearful. And it marks their trip as they make their way to Jericho. But Jesus allows that holy moment to be broken. He allows himself to be deterred, to make one last stop, to have one last interaction with one last person before he goes to Jerusalem to be hailed as the king that he is not going to be. And maybe that same awe and that same fear marks the last part of the trip. Seventeen more miles are ahead of them after Jericho, but this is the last event that's recorded. All the Gospels are silent after this encounter until their arrival at Jerusalem for that Palm Sunday. This is it. Who is it that Jesus refuses to rush by? Well, it's Zacchaeus. And you probably know a considerable amount about Zacchaeus because this is one of the most famous stories in Scripture. Maybe we should get this out of our system right now. You want to? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) But true to our American culture, we focus on the outward appearance that he was a wee little man. Instead of focusing on what was inside, that's where the true story is here. We should sing, Zacchaeus was a rotten little man. And a swindling little man was he. That version would get more to the heart of the story, but of course we can't teach our children that song and they have go sing it to their grandparents. It wouldn't be appropriate. But Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And the Roman tax system worked like this. Now he, he'll do a corporate yawn, but this is really important to talk about the, the Roman tax system because it's important to this story. The Roman Empire divided the empire up into tax districts. And the Roman Senate determined how much taxes had to come from each one of those districts. And so this this ruling class called the Equites, they were like Roman um, knights, they would pay for that particular district, an amount of money, and put that money in the Roman treasury. That Roman knight would then hire a chief tax collector. And that chief tax collector, in turn would hire low-ranking tax collectors like Matthew was, the disciple, before Jesus called him. And they were to collect these taxes. No restrictions were placed on how much they collect. It didn't matter because Rome had already gotten paid their amount of money. So these knights would hire these tax collectors and their responsibility was, of course, to collect the minimum, at the very minimum, the the price that the knight had already paid. Are y'all following with this? But listen, a lot of tax had to be collected because not only did the minimum have to be made, but that knight had to make a a huge profit. And the tax collector had to make a profit. And the little tax collector, all of them had to make a profit. Or why bother? The system was a vicious one. These guys taxed everything. Imports, exports, you're passing through Jericho. We're going to tax you anyway. They were encouraged in fraudulent activity. They overcharged whenever they had the opportunity. They would extract and extort money however they could. They would bring false charges of swindling, uh, of smuggling against people. Oh, you're smuggling that. And then the person would have to pay hush money. 
There was nothing a taxpayer could do about it. Who are you going to report? Who are you going to report to? The Roman government? They're going to help you know it's their system. It was the basest of all livelihoods. And tax collectors were deeply resented and hated in general. Now compound those feelings by the fact that this district of Israel, where the the Jews lived, they thought it was sinful to pay taxes to a pagan government like Rome. And so they hated tax collectors even more than the -the run-of-the-mill Romans hated them. And then add to that fact that Zacchaeus was a Jew who had agreed to do this job for Rome, that foreign, carpet-bagging, oppressive government. And it's easy to see why Zacchaeus was easily, or could easily have been, the most hated man in all of Jericho. Verse 7, it says there that the people referred to Zacchaeus as a sinner. And Calvin, in his commentary, says that the word sinner used here isn't used in just its normal sense, but a different sense, to, den- to denote a man of, graceful, of, of disgraceful and scandalous life. That's Zacchaeus. So, if Jesus is going to be deterred on his trip to Jerusalem, if he's going to break that awful, fearful moment, if he's going to have one more encounter with one more person, why would it be a man like Zacchaeus? Well, maybe it provides one more occasion at the very end of Jesus' life to remind us why Jesus began that life on earth in the first place. He tells us the answer in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. A few more miles, Jerusalem, palm branches, cheering crowds. But Jesus didn't come to be the kind of king that they want or expect. Because that's not the kind of king that they need him to be most. And so one last time, right here, Jesus shows us the kind of king that he truly is. Here in Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. One more time. God miraculously called the, caused those walls to come tumbling down so that God and his people could enter in Jerusalem and enter into Jericho, the first city that they encountered in the promised land. Now, Jesus is going to call this, cause the spiritual walls to come tumbling down. Nothing is going to prevent Jesus from entering into the heart of this despised little man. That's the kind of king he is. And that's the kind of power he possesses. He possesses the power to save what was lost. Here's the question. What was lost? What was lost? All was lost. Everything. Shorter Catechism, question 19. What is the misery of that estate wherein to man fell? The answer, all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. And when you have lost communion with the one and only true and living God, when you have lost communion with the creator and the sustainer of the universe, you have lost everything. That's the truth. And that's what happened and what we refer to as the fall. We fell out of this beautiful state, this glorious condition of unhindered communion with God. 
Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God. They rejected his authority over them and they sought, please imagine, to be equal with God. And so they fell out of that intimate relationship that they had known with him. They lost it. Something else was lost in the fall. This is from chapter 9 of the Westminster Confession. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any good spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. We have lost the ability to do anything about our lostness. The universal human condition is lostness. And that isn't up for debate because the God who created everything that is declares it to be so. And so those who continue to rebel against God will continue to be lost. What does it look like to rebel against God? It's the person who insists, I will live by my own authority. I will do what I want to do. I will do it when I want to do it. With no regard for God or for how he tells us that we should live our lives. For those who arrogantly claim that there is no God to have authority over them in the first place. For those who scoff and say, dude, I'm not lost. Look at me. Do I? Do I look lost to you? And that's what we hear. Yeah, you're so lost, you don't even know what it means to be lost. All are lost. Lost rebels. But here's the good news. The good news is that God has something better for us than lostness. And that's why Jesus came. To rescue us from our lostness. To restore to us what was lost, and that is communion with God. And so here in Jericho, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you one last time what a true king does. The cheering crowd that's waiting for him in Jerusalem, waving the palm branches. That parade is more about the people than it is about Jesus. It's about their expectations and and what they want and their desires. And they want a king that's going to free them from the rule of Rome. They want a king who's going to relieve them from the burden of these awful Roman tax collectors. And for a brief moment, when Jesus comes riding into town, they think Jesus will be that kind of king. But here in Jericho, and here with Zacchaeus, Jesus displays his kingly authority. I love it. Authority to rescue, to save from lostness both now and forever. Look in verse 5. With authority of a king, Jesus commands Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And watch this. Without waiting for an invitation, Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. Because see, Jesus is a king. He's not some poor, pitiful, powerless, pleading beggar. Zacchaeus, oh please, please, Zacchaeus, may I come to your house today? Look in verse 9. With kingly authority, Jesus makes a kingly proclamation today. Today, salvation has come to this house. This is real power. This is kingly power. But the authority-seeking rebel in each of us is kind of difficult to kill. kill. We like to be in control of our own destiny. 
And you pick that up when you read all these commentaries. Everybody makes a big deal about why Zacchaeus climbed that sycamore tree. And of course, it's all speculation. But most of the commentaries, they they tried to give Zacchaeus some credit for what happened to him that day. Well, Zacchaeus, he wanted to be saved. And so he swallowed his pride and he made himself the target for jokes and ridicule by climbing up into that sycamore tree to see Jesus. But how do we know that Zacchaeus didn't climb up in that sycamore tree so that he would know what Jesus looked like so he could extort a little money from him? Scripture tells us that they, they had a, a treasury box. Judas took care of it. And scripture tells us that, that Judas stole from it. We don't know. We don't know what he was after. We can only speculate that Zacchaeus would have called out to Jesus if Jesus had not called out to him. But how do we know that Zacchaeus wasn't trying to hide in the branches of that sycamore tree? And why can't we just let the call of Christ be the call of Christ? Why are we so prone to making Zacchaeus the master of his spiritual destiny? That Zacchaeus was smart enough to figure out his great need. And that Zacchaeus was, had the good sense to go out and to look for what he needed most. Why can't we just let Jesus be this good and this loving and this gracious? That he gives apart from being asked. Why can't we believe that Jesus is good enough and kingly enough to call someone right now? Even in this place, maybe there's a happy rebel setting here. You love your lostness? You love directing your own course? Why can't we believe that the Spirit of God is good enough to show you your sinful rebellion and your lostness and your need to turn in faith to Christ as the only one who can save you out of your lost estate? Jesus is really just that loving We're like Zacchaeus. We want to extort some of the glory from God. We want to extort some of the glory from Christ. We want a little bit of of it for ourselves. We had something to do with our salvation. We can't just give it all to Jesus. Hey, this is all about you. Isaiah 65, verse 1. I revealed myself, this is God speaking, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The verse does not read that the Son of Man came to save those who sought Him first. Both the seeking and the saving belong to Jesus. And how loving He was and how gracious He was to seek and to save this tax collector called Zacchaeus. And if the door of hope is open that wide to people like Zacchaeus, who are we to shut it? Or to pull it to just a little bit? 12,000 priests lived in Jericho. Please imagine, 12,000 priests. It was one of their priestly cities. What could that city have looked like if these 12,000 priests had truly loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved their neighbor as themselves? Instead, this passage tells us that they muttered that Jesus was going to the home of a man like Zacchaeus. 
See, the religious people would shut the door to salvation. They were offended that Jesus would go and eat with a sinner. And given everything that we know about Zacchaeus, their muttering is understandable, but it's not excusable. How many times must Jesus tell them and tell us who he is and what he has come to do? And isn't Matthew standing here? Here's Matthew. He's watching the whole thing. And he must be the most joyous one of all because Matthew was a tax collector and he knows what Jesus did for him and so he knows what's in store for Zacchaeus. That's his story. Jesus called him when he was collecting taxes. Follow me. And he did. And Matthew took him to his home. And of course, what kind of friends does Matthew have? Tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus met with them and he ate with them. And when the religious people saw this, they said, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Later, what is it they call Jesus? Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why would we ever try to shut the door that Jesus has thrown open? Among the many messages that are in this story, for us, surely this is chief among them. All are welcome. All are welcome. And what would our holy city, holy city, look like if all the holy people in this city, you and me included, really got this message? All are welcome. All are welcome. And what if we went after people with the gospel like Jesus went after Zacchaeus? And what if we didn't make any assumptions about who might be saved and who may not be saved? About who will believe the gospel and who will not believe the gospel? Who are we to make those assumptions? And I know I do it all the time and maybe you do as well. Well, that person will never come to faith. Or worse, I don't want that person to come to faith. Well, Jesus does. He wants all kinds of people all kinds of people, to come to faith. So do we or do we not have a powerful king? Does he or does he not command with authority? Can he or can he not break down spiritual walls and smash idols and transform even the most degenerate life? What could our city look like if we truly believed that? Why should we ever limit the redeemed? And only share the gospel with people that we can imagine embracing it and accepting Christ as Savior. Jesus is the King of salvation. You got that? Jesus is the King of salvation. And that's the truth that we must learn and live by. One more message. There's so many in this passage. Just time for one more. Another truth to challenge us on this road to Jerusalem And that is that Jesus must be king over our lives as well. He's king over salvation. He must be king over our lives. Look at at verse 8. This is Zacchaeus' response. Look, Lord, here and now. Okay, not sometime in the future. Here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, and the construction in Greek there indicates this is a statement that is absolutely true. If I have cheated anybody, I will pay back four times the amount. That is a transformed life. That is. Which must always be the result. 
when King Jesus comes to reside in our hearts, change must come. Change will come. When you are loved so intensely and so undeservedly. Zacchaeus' greatest area of sin, his his business dealings, his biggest idol, which was his wealth, they come crashing down in the light of the salvation of the Lord, in light of the lost communion with God that has been restored, that, that, that Zacchaeus has found. And so the idols must come crashing down in our lives as well. We talk about loving Jesus. We talk about trusting Him. We talk about forgiveness. We talk about the hope of heaven. And those are all good things to talk about. They truly are. But the renovated life, the transformed life, the transformed life they bear witness to the reality of the presence of Christ in your life and mine. And when a rich man starts giving away his money, when a rich man starts giving away his money, and when an extortionist starts making restitution, you know for sure, behold, the old has passed away. And all things have been made new. And you begin to ask with the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116.12, How can I repay the Lord for all His goodness to me? And you begin to make a commitment to live differently and to act differently. You begin to repent, not just in words, Oh, I'm so sorry, but in actions, righting the wrongs, that we have committed when we have the ability to write them. And so we should be glad that Jesus didn't go rushing by Jerusalem. He, I mean, Jericho. He didn't go rushing by Zacchaeus. Come on, guys. We have to keep moving. I have to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's true. But the world is made up of ones. You and You and you and you, me. And Jesus has time for each one. We've only touched on part of what happened here. All that there is here to comfort us and to challenge us. I hope that we're all comforted by the totally free, unsolicited grace that Jesus extends to Zacchaeus. Because if he extends that grace to Zacchaeus, he can extend it to us as well. We ought to be challenged not to be afraid to let grace be grace, free grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. That's the truth. Proclaim it. We're comforted to see that Jesus can bring true change, powerful, powerful change to lives. And so we're hopeful that he can bring that change to us. And we're challenged as we look at the story of Zacchaeus. Not to cling to our sins, not to cling to our former way of living, but to renounce it, like like Zacchaeus renounced it. Challenged to live a life that demonstrates that we truly believe the gospel. Challenged to live a life that demonstrates that King Jesus truly has made a triumphal entry into our hearts. That's the power of our King. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, and once again, we are thankful for this road trip with you. Oh, and what we've seen along the way, and, and who we've met, and how we've watched you, how you deal with people. 
where we truly are comforted to, to see how you, how you deal with people, to see how you respond. Where we're comforted because we know that's how you will deal with us as well. But we're also challenged by what we read here. Challenged to live the kind of lives that you call us to be, lives that honor you as our King. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would give us the strength to be just as bold and just as drastic as Zacchaeus was in his life. To make those changes that we need to make. Or to let go of the sin that we cling to. Or those idols in our lives, things on which we depend and trust. That, Lord, if they were taken away from us, whether it's a person or, or, or something material that we just don't know what we would do, Lord, help us to let them go uh, and to trust you to be all to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have found those of us who were lost and that you have restored us to a relationship with you. Lord, that we can live in intimate relationship with the one and only true and living God. We cannot comprehend it. We thank you that it's true. Lord, I pray that we would seek to live ever more closely in communion with you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.